Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Radio. I'm your host, Ray Weaver. Now, these uh, next couple of radio shows might sound different because I'm on the road and I don't have access to my home recording studio. And this is a different series of shows. And I think I'm going to forgo theme music and this and that and the other thing. I might play a song or two. I don't know. Because I'm traveling back home to the house of my father, as they call it, and the house of my mother my childhood home back in Pasadena, Maryland, because my mom passed away last September. Um, she had had cancer, and she passed away last September, and I'm back in my childhood home because it's time to, to close it down. I'm 66 years old, and I have lived in this house off and on since I was six years old. This house has been a part of my family for longer than that. My mom lived in this house as a girl, and there's always been someone with some connection to my family that's lived in this house since it was built. But my sisters and I have decided that we're going to to let it go. It's hard. I'm sitting here in what used to be my mom's bedroom, talking to you, telling you these stories, and it's not going to be easy to to let this old place go. So there might be some sad stories here and there might be some funny stories here, but there will be stories here. I'll talk about uh, this place, this wonderful, well, now falling down old house. But it's been my childhood home. This place that I'm sitting at right now, like I said, it was my mom's bedroom at the end of her, her life because it was the easiest access room. But it used to be a back porch or a lanai or whatever you call that thing. It was a a place that was glassed in around the uh, around the outside. It was a porch, didn't have a uh, solid walls, windows all the way around, and a low wall. And uh, we used to sit out here. And uh, this was kind of an outdoor place where you could get a fresh breeze blowing through. Back before the Weaver Homestead had air conditioning. We would sit out here in the summer and eat crabs and eat dinner. We were out here a lot. And um, this was kind of like the place where I had band practices with many of my really crappy <laughs> bands. Gosh, when I think about what this room was, isn't that the thing about a house, though? Isn't that, it just it mutates through the years. Like I said, it started off as a back porch area, a place where, you know, you could sit and... Um, eat crabs, or the kids could play out here. It was part of the house, but it wasn't something that had to be particularly fixed up or too fancy or whatever. So kids could play out here and had kind of like a, not a picnic table because it was inside, but a more uh, a formica top table and just kind of relaxed atmosphere out here. And this is what our back porch. But then when my parents finally started getting room air conditioners, my dad decided, as my dad often did, to decided to um to enclose the back porch and you know kind of put walls all the way around then just add a few windows here and there and make it more another room in the house and it kind of became the TV room now my parents had a projection style 
large screen TV. Kind of had to see this thing to believe it. It was really big. It took up the whole corner of the room. And uh, if you looked at it when it wasn't turned on, you could see red, green, blue, yellow lights maybe on the inside. And now my parents were not by any stretch of the imagination rich people, but toward the end of my father's life, he um he wasn't particularly well. So this TV was sort of his um companion and he could sit and watch this gigantic television, huge screen, big thing. It was had a big cabinet and and the picture was just terrible. It was a shitty picture, but he loved it because it was big and you kind of had to be in exactly the right spot of the room to, to enjoy it. But then, like I said, it was a TV room. But while it was still kind of a back porch kind of thing, they had put a wood stove out here right where the TV wound up being. But there was a wood stove out here so we could kind of use this new enclosed room that my dad had created as part of the family room because the heat of the rest of the house was never intended to come out here, so it would not warm up this room. So you put a wood stove in the corner, uh, chimney, you know, all that uh, steel and iron and all that stuff to run it up outside the house. Now, my father, my father did a lot of home improvement projects, and I'm sitting here looking at this, this room that he built, which has a, a drop ceiling and walls that he put in and the windows and I loved my dad and my dad was always working on something but my dad was not exactly the most exacting craftsman in the world and I'm looking at at wall joints don't exactly match up and and baseboard that's not angle cut and that kind of stuff I mean he you know he did his best and it turned out to be a nice place and lord knows we we had some great family times out here, and uh, but it wasn't, you know, it, 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 it's not what you would call a professional job. It wouldn't pass muster with it with a professional carpenter, but he wasn't a professional carpenter, so what the hell? It's funny though because you look at the room now, and um, you think of all the mutations it went through. Look directly in front of me, where I'm looking at right now. There used to be a window right there. That window that was right there went to the only bathroom in the house, very small, tiny bathroom. This is not a very big house. And uh, it was a very, and, and when, when the, the window used to open up, before they put the back porch on, the window used to open up to the outside. So, of course, you know, you got a window in your bathroom and open up the outside, the steam and whatever else needed to come out of a bathroom came out of there. Well, when they put the back porch on and the window was there, the steam and whatever else was in the bathroom would come out onto the back porch, which was not an optimum situation in itself. But what was really hysterical is when, when they turned into a back porch and that window was still there and my dad, who was interesting let's put that way. he would be standing there doing you know his business looking out the window and talking to people that were sitting in the family room he would do it i mean and and my brother-in-law chuck when he first started dating my sister he was like is he standing in there peeing and talking to me at the same time and yes that's exactly what he would be doing well that window is is covered up now as is Interestingly enough, over in that corner that you, to the right there, there's a closet now, a kind of a small, smallish uh, closet, walk-in, not really, but a closet because he, he kind of made a, a little box out from the two walls. And so, but on the other side of that closet used to be the back door to go out of the house. Uh, and I guess maybe that door is still covered up in there. I remember when when my uh, my wife and I moved over from Denmark to take over this house for a while with my kids, and we were kind of remodeling the the kids' rooms uh, so they maybe didn't look like the set of that '70s show, which is pretty much what the whole house looked like. Um, we found we had to take out some. We were going to put up some wallpaper, so we had to pull off some old wallpaper, and we had to you know strip that off and. In the one room, we found some of my dad's 
home improvement projects. And uh, my dad was amazing at using whatever supplies were on hand. He wasn't going to drive out to the damn hardware store and he wasn't going to buy stuff if he had something laying around. He was going to always make something work. So he had, uh, in, in, in the room that we were doing for my daughter, we found uh, sheetrock of different sizes that was strategically covered over with wallpaper, but one, say it was a three-quarter inch piece of sheetrock and the next one was a half inch. So you had that little gap there with some with some tape uh, covering up the gap. And then maybe it would go back to the right size later on. Uh, but that was my dad. And I remember my dad had passed away years before we got here to remodel it for my children. And I remember peeling off that old wallpaper and seeing his handiwork and also seeing for the first time in a long time, I saw his handwriting. I saw my, my dad's handwriting because he had written some sizes of things that he was measuring on that wall, three and three quarters, inch and a half, five inches. There it was in, in my dad's handwriting written in carpenter's pencil. And I swear to you, I, I had a moment there where I just, I didn't want to cover it over. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to cover over that handwriting. It just looked so magical. There it was. I hadn't seen it in so many years. And there it was. So anyway, we're, we're out here on this back porch, which was my mom's bedroom. But before it turned into my mom's bedroom, as it is now, while after, for a while after it was a family room, it became my bedroom. But not the whole thing. They still had the family room in front, but I was a teenage boy by this time, and uh, I needed a little bit more space than I had had in my little upstairs room, and I needed an entrance that I could go in and out without disturbing my parents, which this uh, place had. So directly where the the back door was, they put up a uh, a little. My dad, my dad framed out with some two by fours, he just framed out a little, a little box wall there and then slapped up some, some uh, paneling, some good old wood grain paneling, no insulation, nothing like that. Just, and then put a door frame in, put a doorknob and door. And there you go. That was my bedroom. And the whole thing would have maybe been looking at it now. I never realized how small it was, but it was probably eight foot by eight foot. And that was it. And my had my bed in there, and my guitars, and my uh, my my clothes uh, dresser. That that was my bedroom, and I could come in and out and uh, go out the back door. And the family room was, as I said, directly in front of, of my bedroom. It was just right there. <laughs> so I'd be in there sleeping, snoring, and uh, playing the guitar, and my family be sitting out on the other side of that very very thin, cheap wood grain paneling, watching Ironside or whatever. Uh, this room, this room has had some life in it. While it was a family room, it, then it became a family room again. We took the wall out. When I got older and moved out, we took the wall out and put some carpet down and then put some parquet floor down, whatever was the trend at the time. And then it sort of became a an entertainment room again. And uh, I would have folks over, even after I'd moved out, my parents would, would have folks over. And they'd be playing music. Oftentimes, there was an old upright piano out here that my dad had found somewhere and uh, brought it home. It was usually out of tune. And we had some friends who played music, though, and they were pretty good at... Uh, guys in those days, musicians in those days, men in those days were really a different breed. Here This old upright piano comes into my house. And... So one of my dad's friends who played piano, or one of my mom, great piano player, and another guitar player, they'd come over, bring a couple of six packs of beer, and with some pliers and some, you know, tools and wrenches, uh, just tune the piano, and got it in, in pretty good too. And then we'd play it for parties and be out here, and people would come over and bring guitars and sing, and uh, that was the party. And it was the party. Music was always a a big part of the life around this house. From the time I, I, I played in, in bands, uh, from the time, you know, it's funny. I saw the Beatles, of course, 
saw the Beatles in 1964, February of 1964, and everything changed. Before that moment, I wanted to be Brooks Robinson, take over at third base for the Baltimore Orioles. And then I saw the Beatles, and like a million kids then, I just wanted to play the guitar and have a rock and roll band. Because I was, you know, pretty skinny, nerdy, dopey looking kid. And I saw all those girls screaming while they were watching the Beatles. And I thought, man, I want to do that right there. I want to do it. But the thing was, the thing that I didn't realize, or the thing that didn't stick with me as an eight-year-old, because I was eight when I saw them, was that you had to practice. You had to learn how to play. You actually had to do it. So I troubled, bugged my parents to get me a guitar somehow or another through some friend or another, through some cousin or another. We wound up with some gold metal flake thing of uh, questionable parentage or history. I don't think it was even good enough to be a Tysco. It was just something. It was gold metal flake. It may or may not have had a whammy bar on it. I don't remember. But what I do remember very well is that the strings were about, oh, I don't know, at least a half inch off the fretboard. It was very unrewarding, completely unrewarding to try to play the thing. And it just wasn't working for me. And I still had that dream, man. I I wanted to be a rock and roller. I wanted to play music. But I didn't realize that uh, being a rock and roll star was going to involve pain, that your fingers were going to hurt. I mean, the whole idea... Was of doing rock and roll was it so nothing hurt. You didn't have to do hard labor. But here, this thing was killing my fingers. So I kind of packed it away and I kind of sort of kept on telling people that I wanted to play music at eight, nine years old, 10 years old, but not really doing much about it. It was kind of there, had the guitar, would pick it up and play a G chord every now and then, but not much. And a friend of mine up the street named Bob Bob had an old K acoustic, F-hole, archtop, old K acoustic guitar. I really liked that guitar. And my dad, who was always very, very, very supportive of me playing music, he bought it off Bob. I think he got it for like five bucks or something. And that one was a little bit easier to play. And it was actually an okay guitar, K archtop. And I started to fumble around getting through a song or two but I was still kind of more into playing baseball, kind of more into swimming, kind of more into doing other stuff than actually sitting down and, you mean you just can't play the thing? You mean you actually have to like work at this? Come on, man. So I was obsessed by music. Creedence Clearwater Revival, bands, Grand Funk Railroad, you name it. It was my thing. I loved music. And I would literally lay in my bedroom, put, this is pre-headphone days now. I would take a pair of small, cheap stereo speakers that I had on my cheap stereo upstairs. I put them one on next to my left ear and one next to my right ear an inch away and blast those records as loud as I could play them, which is why I wear hearing aids today, I'm sure. But I love the music, but I just hadn't quite made that click yet. I hadn't quite made that, you know, that, 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 that thing had not grooved into place that said, oh, you want to do this? Well, here's what you have to do. So I'm talking about this amazing room that I'm in. And uh, I mentioned that half of it turned into my bedroom at one time when I was a young teenager, 12, 13, maybe a little bit before that, 11, 12, 13, I don't know. But anyway, I was laying in my bed one day in the afternoon, Saturday afternoon. My parents had some people over, and my dad was sitting in the family room part, which is kind of where I'm sitting now. But I was laying in my bed, not paying much attention. Might have been reading something. And um, I heard my dad talking to somebody. Can't remember quite who it was. He said, uh, oh, yeah, you know. Ray, Ray, Ray fools around with music. 
he plays a little bit, but he doesn't seem to be very serious with him. It's, it's not, he's not serious about it. I don't think it's really going to amount to anything. Bought him a couple of guitars, but he fools around, and that's about it. And I remember him saying to this guy, you know, I, I don't care whether he plays or not, but it would be nice if we were having a party around here and he could pick a few songs for folks that were visiting or if we went out to the the bar on a weekend he could pick a few songs and get a drink or two just be nice if he could you know play it a little bit and i'd never heard my dad express anything like that about me i'd never heard him say anything like that i mean my dad was good dad he was always involved with what i was doing he sat down at the kitchen table in this very house right here in that kitchen right over there he sat there and went over my multiplication tables with me a hundred times, a thousand times, two thousand times. I never got any good at it. I never did. Once you got past about the sixes or sevens, I'm still pretty lame at it. But he went over it with me. He went over my homework with me. But he never really expressed any uh, interest or any specific idea of what he thought I should do with my time or myself. And he said that. He said, I, I just wish he'd, you know, get good enough at it to, to play for some friends or sing a song or two. So it, I did. I did. It became something that I wanted to do, something that I needed to do because I wanted to make my dad proud of me, because I wanted my dad to go be proud of me. So I signed up for guitar lessons at the, wait for it, YWCA, because that's who was offering them. The teacher was a male. It was a guy. And everybody I took guitar with, except for maybe one or two girls, were, were young guys. And um, he was a good teacher because he was a kind of teacher that, that wanted you to learn the basics and, and know the basics of the guitar. But he knew that young kids wanted to play songs that they heard on the radio. He would not allow you to just kind of pick anything but he would suggest a song that you might have heard on the radio. So you would feel like, if I learn this song, you know, people are going to recognize it. It's not going to be, you know, she'll be coming around the mountain or something like that. And he picked, oddly enough, for me, he picked Galveston, which was out by Glenn Campbell at the time. And I learned, of course, many years later, was written by the great Jimmy Webb, who happens to be one of my favorite songwriters. But he picked that song for me because he thought that it would be challenging enough. Because I played a little bit, more than most of the people in the class. So he picked that one for me. And I had to learn the melody and also had to learn how to play the chords. Um, he didn't subject my classmates to me singing that at the time. But that was the that was the genesis. Those one hour a week or half hour a week or whatever they were guitar lessons that were up in Glen Burnie that he was willing to drive me to because Glen Burnie was a little town just about seven eight nine miles away from where we lived. My dad would drive me up there every day, every every week, and um, I would take my guitar lesson. He'd wait for me and bring bring me back. Now it occurs to me now, and it occurred to me some years later that when Dad brought me back from my guitar lesson. He was always in a pretty good mood after he dropped me off, and uh, then he picked me up. And it occurs to me that the reason was is there was a really nice tavern right around the corner where he could get a short beer or two while he was waiting for me to uh, learn the more complex nature of Galveston. So, and I, I stayed with that, that guitar teacher for about a year, I think. And I don't know that he taught me all that much, except he taught me how to practice and how to be dedicated and how to learn a song. And it all started right here in this little room, in this little space right here, because I heard my dad say, it would be great if he could learn to play a number or two. And I learned to play a few more than one or two. And he heard me play them because there was never, my parents, my mom and dad, a lot of people, when they decide this music thing is going to be their thing, they have a hard time with their folks. Their folks don't quite get it. I never had bigger 
supporters than my mom and dad when it came to the music thing. They had music around them their whole lives. They were very much into music in the way that people of their generation were. Country music was their thing. There was no, was no highbrow music around my house. No musicals and, and, and no Perry Como and no classical music and none of that stuff. It was country music, serious country music. Even, even Elvis was pushing it a little bit for my parents because they liked country and Western music. Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, Tammy Wynette, Gene Shepard, and obscure folks, well, not obscure, but folks that whose names don't roll off your lips like Cal Smith, people like that. Heard it all the time, Cowboy Copas. Those songs were playing. It was, it was the soundtrack of my youth, you know, Slowpoke, and uh, I Don't Want to Play House, and D-I-V-O-R-C-E, um, Folsom Prison Blues, Your Cheatin' Heart. Those songs are the soundtrack of my life. You know what? I think I'll play one. Your cheating heart will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep. But sleep won't come young the whole night through. Your cheating heart will tell. When the tears come down Like the pouring rain you toss around you call my name And then you walk that floor Just the way I do Your cheating heart Will tell on Cheating heart, it's gonna pine someday. I knew crave the love, had you through it. The time will come, baby. You'll be blue, and your cheating heart gonna tell all. When tears come down Like the pouring rain You toss around And you call my name You walk that floor Just the way I do Your cheating heart It's gonna tell Hell, cheat It's gonna tell on you. An old Hank Williams song. One of those songs that my father said that he would be very proud if I could pick a little bit and play for people when they came over to the house. And I guess I learned a reasonably good version of it. It was funny as the years went on and I moved on to start playing, you know, rock and roll and all kinds of music, glitter rock, glam rock. Yes. And I even wore the makeup and everything. Dad would come out to a gig and he would go uh, listen to four or five songs and he'd finally, you know, get a beer or two in him and he'd yell from the bar. So what happened to old Hank? So, well, you know, dad, uh, Hank passed away. <laughs> we had a, it was a running gag we had going on. Yeah, it was funny because uh, some of my work ethic when it comes to music, all of my work ethic really comes directly from my father. My father was a working man, but some of my work ethic when it comes to music comes from him. And a specific incident that happened when I was playing music, he was out. I was in a house band at a place called the Millersville Inn in Maryland. It was directly across the street from the police station, the Anne Arundel County Police Barracks, was directly across the street, which uh, created some interesting times as years went on. But 
So we were the house band there. We played there five nights a week, Wednesday through Sunday. And for that, we received the princely sum of $250 a week. And this was $250 a week. When $250 a week was not a whole lot of money. But, you know, we were musicians. We were playing. We had a full-time gig, so we were happy. So we're playing one night. I guess it was Wednesday, maybe a Thursday. First part of the week. Pretty beat night. Not a whole lot of people in there. And uh, I'm not going to lie to you. We did the first set. Me and the band. We were kind of relaxing and taking it easy between songs. Not really spending a whole lot of time paying much attention to whatever audience there was in the room. And uh, it might take us three, four minutes after one song to quit kind of just goofing around on stage and talking to each other, shuffling through songs that we wanted to practice because we used slow nights kind of as a rehearsal where we could look at stuff that we hadn't really learned or stuff that hadn't been going very well. So we were not really putting on any kind of show at all. So we did the first set, more or less, played for about 40 minutes. And we took a break. And I walked over to the bar where my dad was sitting. And uh, he said, well, I'm going to be going. I'm going to be headed on home. And I said, why, man? You just you just got here. That was only the first set. You usually stay for at least two sets. He said, yeah, well, you don't seem to really care very much about what you're doing. So I don't really care very much about listening to you. And I'm like, come on, Dad, it's a slow night. There are not a whole lot of people here. We're working up some new material. Not a big deal. And he said, you know, a man can get a beer in this town. A lot of different places. There are a lot of bars, a lot of taverns in these places. He said, but every beer I buy here tonight is going to cost me at least a nickel, 10 cents extra because they have live music on. And if I'm going to pay extra for my beer, then I expect y'all to work for me. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that if there is an audience out there, I owe them my best, no matter how I might be feeling at the moment. Or I shouldn't be up on that stage. I shouldn't be entertaining people if I didn't feel like it. Because you know what? I am not, by any stretch of the imagination, a great guitar player, a great singer, or any of those things. I just got lucky. I know a few good songs, a few good chords, got a relatively good line of BS. Write a decent tune, have a decent voice. And there are a lot of people, a lot of people, that ached to do that job, to be up there, to be in front of people. And um, I owe them my best when I'm up there. And I got, I got that from my father. I got that from my father. He... He was a working man. If he worked, the job was, he was going to do the job. And he knew one thing about work. When a job wasn't done, it wasn't done. And you kept on working until it was finished. A lot of memories coming back through this old house while I'm here, moving stuff around, getting rid of old papers and old things that we'd saved for a whole lot of years. I just found a big box of cassette tapes from my old bands and songwriting demos and stuff that I had done. And I can't haul this big old box of cassettes back to Denmark where I live. I can't do that. So I'm going to be looking for a way to, uh, to digitize these cassettes while I'm here, play them into my computer so I can at least preserve the music and go through it at a later date, not just toss it all on the scrap heap. The history of my whole life is is in those tapes. And uh, I don't know whether there's anything good on them or not. I suspect there's not very much that's very good on it, really. I don't think it's like we're saving in a Smithsonian sense or that if I save it, uh, I'm going to save it up and play it or clean it up and get it all digitized and remix it and send it out. And all of a sudden, the people are going to go, my gosh, this is unrewarded genius. No, I would think that a good 98% of it is crap, but it's my crap. So I want to I wanna save that. But there's just, there's just so much 
when you when you're moving your parents things that your own things that you can't you can't save and we had kind of a unique situation with this house like i said my mom lived here when she was a girl i lived here as a child and then i moved back into this house with my family later on as an adult and we were going to take over the house and buy it from my parents so there is just so much stuff here and you find things that you don't remember having you find things that you don't remember your parents uh, having my mom's stuff my mom collected dolls and angels and little baby figurines and of course they're all over the place and she crocheted not crocheted uh, she quilted well she did crochet yeah she did that too so there were boxes of yarn everywhere but she also quilted so there are little squares of, of fabric all over the place and I realized I just found a box of uh, of squares and I realized that those squares were were pieces from my dad's shirt his shirts that she had cut out because she was going to make a quilt out of those and she one time made a quilt out of all the t-shirts that uh, I had gotten at concerts and uh, rock concerts and stuff and made that for me. That's That's gotten lost over the years. And isn't that a shame that, that so many of those things that someone put their time and effort into and love into, sometimes they, they just get lost in, in these lives we lead. My friends from around the world are sometimes amazed at my at my life when I tell them that I have moved a lot of times in my life, Nashville and Virginia, Denmark, Maryland, different places all around, Virginia again, West Virginia, that I've moved so many times. I've had so many jobs, radio announcer, guitarist, uh, city manager, public information officer, uh, writer for the government, they're just kind of surprised by that, that I've done so many things and had so many jobs because that's somewhat unique, at least in my experience, especially in Scandinavia. They tend to have a career and they work that career and they tend to stay very kind of centrally located to where they're originally from. They certainly don't have that American experience or the new American experience of uh, having a lot of jobs, doing a lot of different things for a living. I mean, my dad worked his job for his whole life, got his gold watch or whatever the hell it was they gave him at the end of his life. And that seemed to be more the thing back in his day. But by the time I came around, it was kind of like that kind of thing didn't exist anymore. There was no sense in having corporate loyalty because they didn't have any loyalty to you. They were going to find a way to cut costs, move you on out, do whatever it is they wanted to do. So... I just did a lot of t-shirt screening. I learned how to screen t-shirts. I worked at so many restaurants, uh, loading dishes into those great big industrial dishwashers and scraping and cleaning them and spraying out. I had temp job in Nashville when I was trying to make it in the music business as a songwriter. I worked for a temporary agency. And man, the gigs they would send you out on. Just I had a job spraying out dumpsters in, in Nashville heat in the summertime 100 degrees, standing out there, spraying out dumpsters with a garden hose. And that was just one of the jobs I had that day. Because I did have a radio job when I was doing that, but it wasn't a full-time gig. I had a radio job as a traffic reporter on one of the stations. And yes, I was called, wait for it, right-of-way Ray. Right-of-way Ray was something that the station manager stuck with me. So I did the morning traffic reports and the afternoon traffic reports. And in between... I worked whatever temporary job I could get because that's what you have to do in Nashville to to be in the business. And man, I wanted to be in the music business so much. I can remember sitting with uh, some of the guys I was living with at the time, three or four of us, of course, living in the same rundown place. Uh, <laughs> not exactly your Ritz Carlton, not the Ritz, more the Pits. And we were sitting in a club that had a hot wing special on. I think you'd get like 10 hot wings for $2, let's say. And I'm sitting there and I'm so skinny. 
I've eaten so little during the period of time that my ass actually hurt sitting on the chair. The bones of my butt were hitting that wooden bar chair. And we were literally going through our pockets to see if we could come up with enough singles and quarters and whatever else we could come up with to buy one pitcher of beer to split between the four or five of us and one order of hot wings so we could all get a couple of hot wings. And we scraped around to do that and and listen to whoever was playing, whoever was doing a writer's night thing, dig the music, drink a beer, have some hot wings, literally starving to death. And I cannot remember any time in my life that I was happier because I'm sitting here, you know, it's the dream of a of a young man. It's the dream. You're there. It doesn't matter if anyone knows who you are yet. It doesn't matter if you're famous or any of that stuff. You are in the game. You have made the jump from whatever podunk town you came from, North Overshoe, Maine, or wherever, Glen Burnie or Pasadena, Maryland. You made that jump. You went to Nashville. You went there. And you're there now, and you're living there, and you're writing songs every day, and you're co-writing songs every day, and you're pitching songs, and you're playing songs for people, and you're getting rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. And in my case, you're working three or four jobs just to keep body and soul together. And you know what? I remember it as one of the greatest times of my entire life because I was in the game. I can literally remember sitting there with those guys going, I have never been happier than I am at this moment right now. Now, I never would say that kind of thing out loud to those guys because they'd never let me hear the end of it. But man, I was happy. Broke, poor, girlfriendless, <laughs> but I was so happy in that moment. It's just the dream. It's just when you're young and you have that adrenaline building up and you're filled with piss and vinegar, as they say, and you just know, you just know in your heart that that goal is right there, right in front of you, and you're going to make it. You're going to make it, and you just have that optimism. I've tried really hard over the years never to lose that optimism, and a lot of that, again, comes back to this old house that I'm sitting and telling you those stories and the people that raised me in this house, because my parents... My parents never, no matter what, lost that sense of optimism. Oh, they had their hard times. God knows. This house has seen plenty of joy, but it's also, also seen plenty of sorrow. My, um, my sister, who was closest in age to me, we had uh, three kids in the house when, when we first moved in here, and then my younger sister came along some years later when I was eight years old. But when we first moved in here, it was my um, my three myself and my two sisters, and my sister Sandy was the one closest in age to me, and then there was my sister Tammy. We were all one year apart. I was the oldest, and there was Sandy, and there was Tammy, and there was only three years difference between myself and Tammy. But my older sister Sandy, um, she died quite young in an automobile accident. She was killed in an automobile accident when she was still a teenager. And it was just devastating. I remember I was coming home that night from my girlfriend's house. I was driving home and uh, came across, to, we lived back up in this old house, back up here in the beach, across the main thoroughfare out of town that they had built since we moved in. I was coming down Magathy Beach Road and I crossed across Route 100, which was the uh, thoroughfare that they built to get us more quickly out of here. It's, until then, it was just old mountain roads. So they built a, a road once people started moving down here. So many houses, so many cars. They had to find a quicker way to get things around. So they built Route 100, which was a connecting route to go up to the Baltimore Beltway and, and, and all those points outside of our little neighborhood, our little enclave. And I crossed Route 100 and I looked down to my right as I was driving home and I saw emergency vehicles, police cars, ambulances, the whole deal 
about a mile or so, maybe a half mile up the road. You could see the lights flashing, and it was a Friday night. So I thought, yeah, you know, that's not such an unusual sight. Somebody is either racing in the streets or something's happened up there. So I got home. It wasn't that late, 11, 30, 12, whatever, and uh, went to bed. And then later on in that morning, early morning, the knock came on the door, police knocking on the door. And I could hear my mom and dad down there. And I could hear both of them just in severe emotional distress because the policeman had just told them that my sister had been involved in an automobile accident and they needed to go to the hospital. So they went to the hospital and they found out that my sister had died. And that was a watershed, life-changing moment in this old house. There was uh, very little joy or laughter in this house for some months, maybe some years after my sister was killed. I moved away, actually. Uh, when, that's when I went down to start my career in radio. The stories from there, of course, make up the bulk of the stories I tell here. And I'm not saying that the two things were directly related, but there has to be some sort of connection between the two. Um, my parents took it hard. They really did, especially my mom. And it took some years for them to recover and find a way to live a life without one of their children. I'm not sure that they did it in any psychologically perfect way or in a way that some people would approve of, but I don't really give a damn because they did it their way. And damned if they didn't manage, damned if they didn't find a way to have good times again and have joy again. And I think having grandkids helped them with that. But there's no doubt that until the day that both of them died, they missed my sister terribly because I miss my sister terribly. And it took my mom some years to get into my sister's things and uh, pack up her clothes and give them away, take some of them to Salvation Army or Goodwill and open up her room again and let, let people use that room again. It took her some time. And you know what? I get that now. I think I get that now sitting here in this house in a way that I, I never quite understood it before because it's hard, man. It's hard. Anybody who tells you that it's not is just full of crap. I, I mean, my mom was old. She had been ill for a while. Nothing that's happened over the last couple of months was unexpected. I knew that all of this stuff was coming, but that doesn't make it any easier. And I'm sitting here in this, this house that has so much of my history in it. And of course, there's a part of me that says, ah, just buy the damn thing. Just buy it, you know, move back here, buy it, you know, live in the old neighborhood again. But come on, man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. The house is old, so am I. And I don't have the energy of a young guy. Maybe if I was 36 instead of 66, I would be able to come here and say, yeah, I'll put this old place back together. We'll get it back together. We'll... No, man, I've lived overseas now for 25 years. I have a life over there. I have a family over there. My son lives in London. My daughter lives in Denmark. Of course, I've got a daughter here in Nashville that I'm going to go see in a couple of days. But my wife has a business over there. I've uprooted them enough in this crazy life that I decided to live of music and radio and stories. I've uprooted them enough and I've, I've made enough of a mess of some of the logical conclusions that they could have come to about their own lives while they were being drugged around by me to ask them to do it again. And it's not the right thing for me either. As much as there's a siren song, as much as there's that desire to just stay here wrapped in these memories, wrapped in these blankets of whatever it is that I find here, it's not healthy. It's time for new chapters. It's time to let these things go, to carry them around as memories, 
like I'm going to put the cassettes on my computer so I have digital, you know, remembrances of all that music. I'll just digitize all these pictures in my brain, all of these things, all of these dinners, all of the breakfasts, all of the the moments that we had here, the old piano that uh, I mentioned, the, the fireplace or the wood stove that my dad put in the corner here. One of our old pianos had finally given up the ghost and was really not playable anymore. And my dad did not waste anything, man. So here we are standing just outside that door right there, snow around, smashing that piano to pieces with sledgehammers and axes and other implements of destruction, taking out all the metal pieces, the strings, the little connectors, the little tuning things, take all those out. And we're collecting up the wood shards and the big pieces of wood. And we're smashing that all into kindling or larger pieces. And yes, we brought that old piano in here and we burned it for firewood. We didn't waste. I don't know that that fire sounded any better than any other fire that we ever had, but there it was and there it was burning. And God only knows what uh, toxins were coming off of whatever that piano was painted with or lacquered with or goaded with, but we all seem to, to have survived it. But that's this house. This house was a real house and real people lived here. This is not some... I don't know, cookie cutter place in one of a modern neighborhood like you see now where every house looks the same and every single rule and regulation that the homeowners association sets down has to be followed. You can't have this flag and you can't park that car there and you can't do this. We lived here, man. We lived here. Sometimes my dad might've had, I don't know, three, four cars in the backyard trying to get them to run, taking parts off one, putting parts on the other, and going out every morning to see which one might start so he could drive that to work. You could do those kind of things in those days. Insurance was a little different. He had the titles to all these cars, and maybe sometimes he registered them, and maybe sometimes he didn't. And who knows? I don't know. But he would get a car going and go to work every morning and come home every night, and sometimes the next car would be the one that would run. <laughs> so I remember one time, he came home from work a little early and he had no eyebrows left and his face was a little red and a little blistery. And it appears that what had happened is that on the way home from work, one of the old cars that he was riding, driving that day had caught on fire. The engine had caught on fire and a little bit of the fire had gotten into where he was driving and yeah, he got a little singed. But being my dad, he just pulled off the side of the road left the car there. The fire department came, police came, they got the fire taken out. And my dad, being my dad, he had the car towed here to see if he could get it to run again. Because he's, ah, you know what? New set of spark plug wires and a few other, we'll be able to get this thing to run again. Well, it never ran again. It eventually got towed away from here. He had a collection. I remember what he had. I want to say that it was an old Cadillac. I'm not sure about, no, maybe a Lincoln Continental. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure. It was one of those. It was a big car and it was old. It was like 50, 50th vintage. I mean, don't be impressed that he had an old Lincoln or an old Caddy. This was a junker, yeah, definitely a beater. But the cool thing about this car for us was that the back window, not the back rear window, the big one, could go up and down just like any of the side windows. So when we went to the drive-in movie, my dad could put the back window down and then my sisters and myself, we could sit on the trunk looking over the roof of the car with our legs, you know, down inside and sit there and watch the movie that way. It was classic. And, and a lot of the kids had never seen anything like that before. Hell, I don't know if anybody had ever seen anything like that before, but there we were sitting, watching Mary Poppins or the Beatles in Hard Day's Night, looking over the top of our car with our legs hanging down and eating popcorn on a warm summer night in Maryland and drive-in movies. That's something I should talk about coming up. We went to the drive-in all the time. It was one of the major forms of entertainment in our life because it was cheap and because it was close. And uh, my dad was not big on spending money. 
And so it was cheap. I mean, we could get in there, I guess, a couple of bucks a carload, get the kids in there. And if mom made snacks at home, then we didn't have that expense. They usually let us get popcorn and Cokes, but no hot dogs or anything like that. She made stuff at home. And we'd go there often. And the Shore Drive-In Theater, which was our theater here on Mountain Road in Pasadena, you could see the screen from the road. You could literally see the screen from going up and down Mountain Road. And uh, when movies became, shall we say, a little bit more interesting as time went on, and it wasn't just Elvis and Mary Poppins and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and the Beatles, and some of the films became a little bit more uh, challenging? Is that the word? I'm not sure. Anyway, there were a lot of children in our area that saw their first bare boob or whatever going down Mountain Road when uh, it flashed up on the screen of the Shore Drive-In Theater, which sadly now is a housing development. Theater's gone, screen's gone, people's houses are sitting there, and I'm pretty sure they do not realize that they are living on hallowed ground, soaked with Coca-Cola and popcorn and hot dogs and teenage lust, <laughs> you name it, a lot of stuff went on in that uh, that little drive-in theater. And yes, yes, when I got to be a teenager, we did all the teenage stuff of hiding somebody in the trunk so the price would get lower and parking in the back row because, yeah, you weren't really there to see the movie anyway. Yeah, we did all that stuff. Drive-in theaters were amazing. And you know what? This is just completely random. But we discovered not that long ago that there's a drive-in theater still functioning in Denmark. Like right down the road from where I live, there's a drive-in theater still going on. And we went there over this recently past Christmas holiday, my wife, myself, and two of my children, my son and my daughter, we went to the drive-in theater to see the new Spider-Man movie because we all wanted to see it. And all of the indoor theaters in Denmark were closed at that time due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So we literally went to a drive-in theater in Danish winter weather. Everybody bundled up, blankets, and we went. We saw the movie. We made our popcorn at home watched Spider-Man, and of course we had to run the heater, we had to run the car every once in a while to keep warm, and this theater is so hip to what's going on, and this is where they are, so they walk around before the show starts with duct tape and plastic garbage bags to cover up your taillights and your headlights or whatever lights you have on the car, so when you have to run the heater or you have to turn it on, your lights or whatever do not bug the people behind you or the people in front of you. It's it's just genius and classic. And we had such a good time. It was chilly, but we had such a good time watching the film and we ate our popcorn and we drank our drinks and we watched the new Spider-Man film, which we all enjoyed because we're into that kind of goofy stuff. And guess what? Of course, of course, the battery in the car was dead by the time the, the show was over. And uh, no worries. No worries. We walked up to the concession stand. We walked up to the office and the fellow came down. And of course, they have a battery jumping pack just for that occasion. We weren't the only car. There were six, seven cars sitting there. Needed a, needed a jump, needed an instant charge. And he walked around with it. Boom, 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 boom. Started us all up. We left and we can't wait to go back. We we just cannot wait to go back. Now, we may wait and so the weather's a little bit better. You know, the Danish summer, which usually often falls on a Tuesday in July. <laughs> That's a Danish joke. But anyway, this old house is just bringing back a lot of memories. So the next couple of shows are going to be based on that. There'll be some singing. There'll be some talking. There'll be some stories. And as always, it's all totally random. It's all off the top of my head. That's what radio is all about. I don't script it. But I'm glad you listen. Remember, radio is a father's heart podcast and show. Please check out my book and my music on Amazon. The book is called A Father's Heart. You can get it as an audio book. Please, if you listen to the podcast, which is called radio and available on all the platforms, you can go back and hear the other shows I did 
Just rate it, review it, tell people about it. Let me know you're enjoying it. Let the folks here know you're enjoying hearing the show because I love doing it for you. And I'm Ray Weaver. This is Radio. And I'll see you the next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.